Well, listen, I got to visit Italy this week, um, specifically Rome, which was a lifelong dream of mine. I have wanted to do this for a long time. And full disclosure, I used church funds to do it. One person clapping on that. The rest of you are like, explain. Because I'd used church funds, I flew a step down from coach. It's called Google Earth. You may have heard of it. It's a program that I got to fly all over Rome and kind of check some things out. And I looked at modern-day Rome. Some of you are confused. It's a program I didn't really leave San Jose. That's all that is. Modern-day Rome is this tourist destination, right? And there's all these fantastic things uh, to see. And um, so many people go there and look at things and tour things and study, you know, study things. And you think about Rome and its influence. Let's do a little test. Um, just some sayings that came to mind when I thought about it. When in Rome... Do as the Romans do. Yeah. Stay in Rome is another idea. Just, just move there. Um, Rome was not built. All right. I knew this would get better. And all roads lead to? That's a slow pitch right there. Um, I started looking at, you know, ancient Rome and the, the stats for ancient Rome are, are pretty impressive. You know, 20% of the population at one point in the world, um, was part of the Roman Empire. 2.5 million square miles, 12 centuries of existence. All these phenomenal ways that they have have contributed. Modern uh, modern people look back and and study and learn from uh, from the Romans. The letter to the Romans, which we are starting today, the New Testament book that we call Romans, was written in this grand era of the ancient Roman Empire. It was written probably at 57 A.D. And just to give you some context, some 20 years later, this thing called the Colosseum was built. You may have heard of it. So it's sort of a contemporary of that, that, that this, this letter that, that, that we're going to um, open up and study and invest time in today because it's part of the canon of Scripture is a contemporary of the Colosseum. Now this got me thinking. Isaiah 40 says this, A voice says, Cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And here's the message. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand, how long? Forever. So the greatest civilization of antiquity now consists of relics, the remains of a long-since-departed life. When you go to the Colosseum, never been there except Google Earth, but when you go there, it would be like looking at a corpse, so to speak. You kind of look at the shell of a thing, and you try to imagine the life and vitality that is long since gone from this great civilization. And yet the Word of God is alive and well today. Amen? I mean, it's really powerful to think about. All over the planet, modern people today are poring over a letter written to the Romans. Crafted, as it were, built in the same era that the Colosseum was built. People are quoting it today all over the planet. People are studying it. People are memorizing it. People are saying that the words contained in this letter that we're about to open up and read from has fundamentally changed the, the, the entire direction of their life. You know, the fall of Rome is pretty famous, and it was actually predicted. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth 
will pass away. That includes Rome, Washington, D.C., Beijing, Moscow, ISIS, any other thing with land or idea is going to pass away. But my words will not pass away. So think about this. Every impressive destination that you could ever dream of going to, every site or force that seems to be all in all is submitted to the unchanging word of God. And so that is why, church, that is why we tend to pick a book of the Bible and we just start teaching through it. And we've chosen Romans and we're going to teach through Romans because it's worth opening, it's worth studying, it's worth meditating on. But not only that, catch this, James 1 says this, to meekly receive the implanted word. It's not just that we look at it and study it like a relic and we chalk it off as one of the other destinations within the scriptures that that we have done. Instead, we are here to meekly receive the implanted word. That means, God, our lives are in submission to what we read here. So what we read, we're going to take, we're going to ingest, and we're going to let that flow out of our lives. That's the stance of a Christian. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We thought we'd start with chapter 1. It seemed like a good, a good place to begin. Um, you know, as I've studied this and thought about ancient Rome and current Rome and sort of the spread of Christianity and all this kinds of stuff, I really believe it was providential that Paul didn't get to Rome in his timing. It's sort of one of those things, we have a timing in life, we have a plan in life, and I don't know about you, but most often my timing and God's timing seem to be on, you know, a different schedule. And a lot of times that causes a lot of consternation, frustration, right? And you just go, oh, what is God doing? And we can look back and say, God's timing's better. I trust God's timing. Paul was trying to get to Rome, but he wasn't able to get there. And because of that, in preparation, Paul put to paper this masterful argument of the Christian faith. This sort of shining example of the gospel. Think about why you put something in writing. Why do you put something in writing? Well, you might put it in writing to preserve it, right? When we did this, uh, we, we, we did a time capsule out here. I'm going to post on the city sort of all the things we put in there and why we put them in there. But we wrote them down. So whoever digs this thing up in the future would have an understanding of why these things are in this time capsule. So you put things in writing to preserve a message, but you also put things in writing for clarity, One person said this, that Paul may have viewed Romans as his legacy to the church, his last will and testament. You think about all the sermons he gave, all the things that he wrote, all the ways that he taught. um, We understand this, that not all preparations are the same. He was about to write a letter to the Christians to the center of 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 the known Gentile world at that point, Rome. And so you think about it, like the first sermon ever broadcast on radio, whoever prepped that sermon is thinking, I'm used to talking to whoever can fill a building and hear the sound of my voice. Now my voice is going to be beamed all over the place. How about that very first presidential debate that was televised? You don't think there was some serious preparation that went on with that? Because now, man, the whole nation has the capacity to see this. I think as Paul must have sat down to write Rome through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, again, there's providential things happening, but from just a purely human standpoint, he's going, man, this is going to Rome. All roads lead to Rome. All roads go out from Rome. People take their cues from Rome. And that's why we have what one commentator called the Fort Knox of Christianity in the book of Romans. 
Man, there's just all this truth locked and contained in this letter. Martin Luther, he was a German, he was an impeccable monk, and he was a lousy sinner, and he hated God for that. He said this of Romans. After Romans 1.17 caught his attention, and he caught that righteousness is from faith, he said this of Romans, that Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, which indeed deserves that Christians not only know it word for word by heart, but deal with it daily as with daily bread for the soul. He goes on to say this, for it can never be read or considered too much or too well. And the more it is handled, the more delightful it becomes and the better it tastes. Probably three months ago, I started stockpiling quotes about Romans. It gets a little silly. I mean, people of old especially would just write these flowery things. But Stott and Calvin and Tyndale, some of these commentators that people learn from today, all attribute Romans to their very salvation. That God used a passage or two in Romans to change them. The reason for that is the gospel is contained in Romans. It's contained in a pretty thorough way. Now, one temptation, I suppose, would be, well, I understand the gospel. What more do I need to learn? It's a pretty simple message. It's a simple message that a child could understand. Timothy Keller says this, One of the signs that you may not grasp the unique, radical nature of the gospel is that you are certain that you do. I don't think Romans is a great book to hand to a new believer, especially one who's trying to understand, you know, and, and get saved, although God can do whatever he wants with that. But things like 1 John and, and the Gospel of John might be better for that. But for a Christian who is saved and needs to have a deeper understanding of what they, what has really happened, what, what has transpired, man, Romans is a phenomenal book to begin to, to pour over. So this could be answered a lot of different ways, but what is God teaching us in Romans? Let me give you four things. If you're jotting them down, you can just jot down. These are some some four kind of major ideas, and it's really hard in a 16-chapter uh, book like Romans to kind of put major themes down. But but here's how I've sort of boiled it down. Number one is um, just this idea of of what the standards or what the measuring stick is. You know, every single person who's ever lived is tempted to measure against a standard that they will hold up well to. So if they look around modern times and go, I'm doing pretty good, morally speaking, they're going to compare themselves here. You ever hear someone bring up, well, what about Hitler? What is that? That's like the go-to ace in the hole, right? <laughs> I'm better than this guy that lived during World War II. Well, good for you. You know, like, I don't know what, what that proves. But that's someone taking a measuring stick and saying, I know I've got one guy beat in history. So let's go, let's go back, let's go back and compare ourselves to Hitler. The book of Romans shows this righteousness standard that comes from God, is set by God, and is demanded by God. So if you're tempted to go into a different locale to compare yourself, or a different place in history to compare yourself, Romans lays bare God's righteous standard. Here's the second thing, is to trust God. This life that we live as Christians, the life that we're called to. We just think about this. We're counting on your name. I thought about it. I was standing in the back hearing you sing, just, just thinking on these words. I'm trusting you. I believe in you. I'm counting on your name. Some of you walked in here this morning, no doubt, just from a position of strong faith and saying, 
Yes, it's so good to count on the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. And then some of you have walked in here and your last shred of hope, your last clinging thing is, I've got to get myself to church. Because God, I I can't count on anything else. And, And honestly, my faith in you is a mustard seed right now. It's a thread. But I'm counting on you. And here's, here's the powerful thing, church family. Every single Sunday, the full gamut of those people are here. And praise God, a flickering wick God's not going to snuff out, right? A bruised reed He's not going to crush. So we all come in here needy. We all come in here humble. But in different seasons of our life, different truth will kind of shine brightly. Trust God. It's a life of faith rather than sight. Here's the third thing. Mimic God. We're going to see in the scriptures our terrible state, what God did to redeem us, that he gave himself completely in love to us. And then the last part of the letter, much like the rest of Paul's letters from chapters 12 on, is all about us mimicking God. God gave himself in love to us. We give ourselves completely in love to God. And the reason we even have the capacity to do that is because of the first half of the book of Romans. Number four is this, that this truth is for all mankind ever and always. Because of that, I'm calling this series Colossal Truth. I want to walk you through fairly quickly just some different passages. And this isn't exhaustive. This is just, um, this is honestly just kind of top of my mind as I'm going through. I just started making a list of some of the things about the far-reaching claims of the letter of Romans. Watch how, watch how completely all-inclusive this is. Here's what I'm talking about. Um, number one is this, the depravity of all mankind. Listen to Romans 3. None is righteous. In case you missed the word none, he says this, No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then a verse you probably know well, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is devastating in its judgment. Every one of you, that one person that thinks, well, yeah, that's most people, not me. No, 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 you too. You're not seeking after God. You don't do good. The penalty that all sin deserves is death, according to Romans 6.23. The single way of rescue for everyone's Death sentence is the gospel. That is a sweeping truth. That's not inclusive of any other ideas. That's saying there's one path. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The work of Christ is enough to cover all humanity. Romans 5.18, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The offer is absolutely and eternally free. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The offer is available to all. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scriptures say, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you see? Do you hear how how devastatingly large the bad news is? It covers all of humanity, and how utterly sweepingly good. The good news is that it's open to one and all. Not only is it open and available to all, but the the only way um, to grace is through belief. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. Not only that, but the pardon received by those is complete. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only are people affected by this, but Romans 8 says that all of creation is affected by the curse. All of creation is longing for this restoration, this period of redemption. Not only all creation, but every circumstance. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And finally, all ruling bodies and authorities are subject to the King of Kings and the plan that He is working. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. These are colossal truths. Totally ruined, completely redeemed, utterly free, entirely secure in the love of God. But it's colossal not just in its reach. I mean, you just you just go through Romans. We're going to see this over and over and over again. Written to the center of the known world at that time. And he's saying, for all of time, these are truths. And here we are, all these years later, reading it as truth. So it's not just colossal in its reach, but it's colossal in its importance. Now, truth is truth. Would you agree with that? Truth is truth. But all, not all truth is equally important. There's sort of big truth and little truth. Let me give you a couple examples. If I have a hangnail, that would be true if I have a hangnail, right? But if I have, if I have a hangnoose around my neck, that's a truth that's different. It's a little bit of a bigger deal, right? If I get fired tomorrow, that's a huge deal. If you lose your job... That is now a true state for you. But if you're on fire, that's even more urgent, right? So all of a sudden, getting fired feels like a really small truth as you're rolling around and trying to figure out how to put yourself out, right? So there's big truth and there's little truth. So colossal truth has this way of displacing smaller truths. You get this giant truth that lands in your lap in your life. And it's almost like there's only so much, you know, capacity in your life. And so it's like displacing water out of a jar that has a giant rock put into it. That truth alters the reality, your, your other smaller realities. doesn't make them untrue. I might still have a hangnail. I might still be fired. But all of a sudden, this warrants my biggest attention. 
The truths laid out in Romans are like that. They are colossal truths. Here's what a Christian does with that. A Christian allows what God does for us, he allows those to be a foundation, this this undergirding to the rest of our life that fundamentally alters things. For a non-Christian, for someone here this morning that's wrestling with belief and saying, I don't know about this, those big truths are sitting there and kind of like Jesus being a cornerstone that people trip over, these big truths are there. They pronounce ruin to all of mankind, that there's not even one person righteous in and of themselves, and they trip over it. They stumble over it. The big rock is there, and for a Christian, it displaces and affects everything else as we receive it, as we believe it, as we build our life around it, as we cooperate with that truth. But for others, it's just a stumbling block. Read about it. That's what, that's what happened with Christ. The chief cornerstone, the very foundation became this stumbling block for people. It didn't alter the reality of who Jesus was, but as it wasn't accepted, it became a tripping point for people. We're going to read the first seven verses together here in just a moment. And here's what I want you to listen for. I want you to hear some big truth, some colossal truth that was present in Paul's life and affected everything about him. Just in this introduction... We're going to see who he is, who he belongs to, so whose he is, what he's about, and who his target is. Those are some big things. Who he is, whose he is, what he's about, and who his target is. Okay, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, follow along with me. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among the nation, among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at the end of a letter, we might put PS. PS stands for what? Postscript, right? There's also something called prescript. And prescript is sort of the address, how we would address things. And we've done this with Galatians. We've done this with Colossians, all these other letters. But what Paul is doing is he's using something that's very customary in Greco-Roman times, and he's using a prescript. And a prescript starts off a letter saying, here's who's writing this. So Paul is, Paul is introducing, um, this, this letter by, by introducing himself. So a couple of thoughts on the author. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Of all the ways he could have identified himself, He decides to put these three things in there. He's a slave of Jesus. Remember that there would be many contemporaries of Jesus who knew of this Jesus of Nazareth, news about him and his life and his death and his supposed resurrection and all of that swirling around and this sort of movement that has risen up around it. There's contemporaries, of course, that would 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 have lived through these times. He's saying, I'm a slave of this, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He also calls himself an apostle. 
Now, an apostle can just be a sent one, a missionary, an ambassador. Paul is one of the apostles, capital A, meaning he received direct authority from Jesus Christ. And then he says that he's set apart, meaning that Paul knew his assignment. Paul's specific role in the church was this. He was sent by God to bring this gospel to the Gentiles. A Gentile is a non-Jew. Anyone non-Jew, you're a Gentile. So I have the fact that the gospel was brought to Gentiles, Paul to thank. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring Paul and giving him the mission to go take this to the Gentiles. So do most of you. Because he was on assignment to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, no small feat. Let me give you a couple of thoughts about Paul the author. You know that his dad was a Pharisee. And he took up the family business. He became a zealous Pharisee. He was varsity Pharisee. He was a Roman citizen. We learned from that from one of his abuses that he was taking. He was a tent maker by trade. He was first a student of the rabbis, but later an apprentice of the famed Gamaliel. He became a chief persecutor of the Christians. Remember Stephen, as he was being martyred, Paul was there tending the coats. He was the coat check guy. He was there persecuting Christians on authority from his sect. Paul was a fastidious keeper of the law. Again, he outshined all his classmates in being a rule follower, a rule keeper. And then something happened. You can read about this in Acts chapter 9, but on the way to Damascus, he is rebuked directly by the risen Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? He's rebuked directly by the Lord Jesus Christ, but not just rebuked, he's given authority and truth directly from him. And you can say at that point, I mean, to say at that point that his life was fundamentally altered forever in a massive way is a, is a giant understatement, right? What happens is he ends up going on three missionary journeys. He does that because he knows his assignment. His assignment is not to stay in Jerusalem. It's not to stay with the Jewish people. It's to go out. He's a sent one. He's an ambassador. So he goes on these three missionary journeys. And all along the way, he encounters both opposition and reception. You can read all about this through the book of Acts. When I was a kid, I was bored. I would look in my Bible, and I would always look to the back and see the maps. Anyone else do that as a kid? And I would run my finger along the maps and pretend I was sailing and doing different things. I'm not sure, you know, God through osmosis, I'm sure, got some of the scriptures into me. But I thank God for the maps on the back, because that kind of kept me sane at some times when I was growing up. And I look now and I go, man, those, those, those maps represent a phenomenal tale. An unbelievable life of power lived by faith and not by sight. It represents time and time again of God's providence and provision. So after going on these three missionary journeys, he writes Romans probably during his third missionary journey from the city of Corinth around 57 AD. And this is the man who was set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 2 says this, which he promised, this gospel, beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's a couple of things about the message that Paul is proclaiming. Number one is that it's rooted in history. 
It's rooted in the Old Testament. We're going to see this time and time again. All through every one of Paul's letters, he quotes the Old Testament. He's constantly reaching back to the Old Testament. In fact, one of the things you find in Romans is he presupposes that God exists. He doesn't try to prove God's existence. He presupposes that the history and the narratives of the Old Testament are gospel truth, are inspired scripture. And so he uses those to build on what he's talking about. They're not only promised via the prophets, but fulfilled through the bloodline of who Messiah would come from, which is David. Secondly, the idea that the gospel is found in a person, namely Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to take from this. Our faith is a historical one. Sometimes we're tempted to kind of like not talk about the Old Testament, not read the Old Testament because it's kind of confusing, challenging, difficult to get through, or say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. Do you know every time you say that that's the God of the Old Testament, you're speaking a heresy? Doesn't the Bible say that God is the same yesterday, today, and what? forever. God's characteristic is that he's immutable. That means he's unchanging. If someone is perfect and holy, then any change would be a change away from perfect. Do you get that? So God cannot change. I know that you're tempted to kind of brush parts of the Old Testament under the rug. I know that you're tempted to go, I don't want to look there because I get bad feelings when I read about what God did to those poor people on that battlefield. But Paul wasn't ashamed of the Old Testament. If you take the Old Testament and you rip it out of your Bible, you know what you do? You lose the apologetic of prophecy. What about all these prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ? You're, you're, you're trusting in your own way to highlight Jesus instead of God the Father's way to highlight Jesus? Um, right now, Rob and I haven't checked on each other in a while, but we're on the same reading plan to kind of read through the Bible um, in a year together. And the last four days were rough. Go read the first part of First Chronicles. Until it gets to the historical stuff and there's David's mighty men and pouring out the water from Bethlehem and all the school stuff, there's genealogy stuff. Difficult. I'll just say it. And I just, I, it's an act of faith. I say, God, I'm just, it's an act of faith that I am, that I am reading and listening to every word of your scriptures because I believe it to be true and I believe that you'll use it in my life. Don't dismiss the Old Testament. When the bad feelings come about reading something in the Old Testament, dig in, lean into God. God, this makes me feel bad. Why is that? Secondly, sometimes as a Christian, you are put on your heels. You identify as a Christian, and people go, and they go, what about this? What about this? What about that? How about this? And you know what they have at their, at their side? They have all of human history, all of Christian church history. Some of it is honestly so skewed and out there. I was forced to study this in college. Some of the things I've seen on YouTube and that kind of float around as passable for actual history is mind-boggling. Some of you are fight. Some of you are flight. Do you know what I'm talking about with this? Conflict comes. Some of you like just don't ever measure your own strength. You charge right ahead, and you just start fighting. Some of you at the first sign of conflict, <laughs> You know, you roll like a dog, you know. 
Is it clear? You know, you just wait for the conflict to pass. Please don't hurt me. Here's what I would say to this. When people come up to you and they say, you're a Christian, well, what about? And your heart rate starts to go up and you start to go, oh, my goodness. I hope I've, hope I've memorized the 1,000 principles that I need to know about right now. I hope that you'll bring it back to Jesus. I hope that you'll bring it back to a single person in history, Jesus Christ, and a single event in history, the resurrection from the dead, that everything else hinges on. So here's a great thing. You know, I don't know much about that. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Even if you, even if you might want to go engage in that, wouldn't it be most helpful, though, as a, as a Christian wanting to bear witness, wanting to be an ambassador, to just bring it back to Jesus? You know who I do know about is someone who's changed my life. It's Jesus Christ. You know what I'm utterly certain of? Because if it's not true and this whole thing falls apart, as I'm certain of the historical resurrection of Jesus the Nazarene, who was, in fact, Jesus, the Son of God. Can we talk about that? Can we bring it back to that? This is what Paul is doing in the very start of this. He's not dismissing the Old Testament, and he's saying this gospel message is found in a person. Let's read about this Lord Jesus Christ that we sing about, that we talk about. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. One of those things that all those maps and arrows in the back of your Bible represents is someone thinks it's worth their time. Someone thinks it's worth their effort to keep going even after being beaten, even after being shipwrecked, even after being wrongfully accused and thrown in prison, to keep going, to bring the name of Jesus to all nations. What a powerful witness that is. I love that we have people from this church emanating out, leaving the comfort of this place, because they say, you know what? It's more than worth it that the name of Jesus be highlighted to every person. And until every person hears about it, we're not going to stop supporting it, praying it, and going to people who need to hear about Jesus. You know, those who are called and belong to Jesus possess this certain calm to their life. That changing circumstances, changing health, uh, changing threats, changing elections cannot touch. The reason is because these colossal truths are set and they're not moving. Look at verse 5. Paul's every day was affected by this. He's received grace and apostleship. Don't you get the sense that Paul doesn't struggle with an, an identity crisis? Paul knew who he was. Paul knew what he was about. The most giving people on the planet are those who have received this. A lot of times human relationships, unbeknownst to us, are about taking from each other. We're taking from each other things that that ought to be received elsewhere. So here's an example. You're no longer taking from others, but able to give freely if you have validation. If I need validation from you, then I give you something as long as I get that validation back. Does that make sense? Do you see how all of a sudden I'm using you? What about pleasure? If I need pleasure or want pleasure from someone and I give something to them as long as they give me pleasure back, don't you see we're just using each other? That's just a, that's just a wicked exchange of using each other. What if I fear you? 
I might give and give and give constantly so long as I'm safe from you because I'm afraid of you. Now think about the life of Paul. Part of why he lived such a spectacular life, empowered by Jesus Christ, is because he didn't need to be validated by people. He talked the same to people uh, in, in the temple as on the street as before the highest governor in the land. Paul, are you trying to convert me too? Hey, I'd, I wish I could just convert all of you. We'd have a better government. Yes, I am. He's in jail. Doesn't change his tune. He doesn't need validation from the governor. Doesn't need validation from his countrymen. Doesn't need validation from those that that used to call him a persecutor and now call him a friend. He's got his validation from God. He's free to give. Where's Paul's pleasure wrapped up? Paul's pleasure seems to be wrapped up in a life not here. He's not living the comfortable life here. Who does Paul fear? God. The second someone tries to give them undue validation, calling him a God, whoa, stop! Why? Because he fears God. He doesn't fear man. Do you see that the most giving people on the planet are those who have their validation from God, who seek their pleasure in God, who fear God alone? I mean, this is why Christians ought to live just such spectacularly different lives. And people go, I cannot put my finger on it. But our friendship, what we have, feels different. I think a part of what that ought to be is, man, you're not taking stuff from me. You don't need stuff from me. In a really healthy way, you don't give a rip what I think about your beliefs and your God. You seem validated from some other source. When you meet someone who's been declared righteous, given an assignment, and is absolutely confident of God's unchanging love, you know it. You see it and you go, man, I, there's something really, really attractive about that. Now, after writing who he is, he begins to write to the recipients, those who are going to be receiving this letter. Verse 6, including you who are called and belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, it's one thing to be called to belong to a company. Hey, you got the job. Hey, you're in the upper echelon. You get to be part of the executive team or to some club. It's not a thing to be called and to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Big truth, little truth. And once that big truth is settled, your life is changed. The fact that Paul includes Roman Christians, which would be both Jew and Gentile, in on this idea of, hey, you're loved by God, Christians. Hey, you're standing before God is that you're a saint. Man, the, the, the giant picture of God, God's plan for all the nations to be a part of his family is beginning to unfold even more clearly. Man, Gentiles are in on this. Jews are in on this. Saints before God, loved by God. And then what Paul does, he kind of hijacks sort of this common Greco-Roman practice of, you know, pre and post, and he inserts theology. He does this in all of his letters. But here's what he says, grace and peace from God. So not just the redeeming, empowering grace, but this peace of God. And the Hebrew, he uses the Hebrew word shalom. And peace, shalom, is not just, I'm not in conflict with my neighbors, we're not at war, all is happy. But it's this, it's this totality of God's blessing. Think Ephesians chapter 1. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's true right now, Christian. That's true right now. So he's saying grace to you, Roman Christians. 
Peace to you, Christians. This is ours in Christ. I want to wrap up this opening section with something that I think we're going to go to quite a bit, and that is this. As I read through Romans a bunch leading up to this, I kept writing down a list of what are the things that we're supposed to be doing and what are the things that God does. And let's get really clear on those. So if you're taking notes, I want you to jot these two things down. What we do and what God does. Three things. Here's for us. We are to live out the identity that's been declared to us in Christ. The good news isn't a checklist of things you do. It's news that's been declared to you. So you're a servant. You're called. You're set apart. You're loved by God. You're saints. That's all in the first seven verses of Romans. Who am I? Read Romans 1, 1 to 7. Christian, it hasn't changed. Yeah, but I just got broken up with. That's true, but there's a bigger truth as to who you are. Live out your identity, Christian. Here's number two. Respond in obedience to the assignment given to you. What was Paul's? Paul's was apostle to the nations. That's a big assignment. What's yours? What is the assignment God's given to you? When you look back at Paul's life, don't you see that he was like just uniquely positioned? All the training he had, all the junk he had in his past was redeemed. He didn't turn from a fiery guy who persecuted Christians into milquetoast man as a Christian. God took all of that and he redeemed it as a laser for good. Paul knew his assignment and it changed his life. What's your assignment? Live in response to the assignment God's given to you. Number three is receive grace and peace from God. Live out of the reality that God's grace and shalom are yours today. That means you can wake up and say grace and peace are mine today. And if you get confused on what every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is all about, read your Bible. And when you get to a section that just starts to list what those blessings are, start keeping a list of those. If you're a digital person like me, keep it right on your phone. When you're bored in line, it sprouts. Pull out the list. Let your mind meditate on this. Mine, mine, mine. Birthright as a new believer in Christ, as a new child in Christ. Never to be taken away. Man, that's a good way to live. That's what we do. Here's what God does. God calls and gifts people specifically. The life and work of Paul is not yours. That's not your work, but it has similarities. You have been called, and you have a calling. You are given grace by the same risen Jesus to fulfill it. So our part is just to carry out God's orders. God's part is to fit together. You know, it says the Holy Spirit gifts each church, gifts the church just how it's needed. So that there are the right gifts present in, in a church. Number two, God's role, God, what God does, he keeps his promises. The Old Testament pro- prophecies promised and predicted the Messiah. Jesus promised and predicted an unending kingdom. The Holy Spirit, <coughs> through Paul, promised and predicted a worldwide colossal truth. God's role is to keep his promise, and he's doing a good job of it. 
And there's future-looking things that we ought to be aware of. Number three, and finally, God supplies all that we need. The way of salvation, check. His word put in writing so we can read, meditate, learn, grow, and have it look exactly the same tomorrow, next week, next year, and ten years from now when our life is falling apart, check. Proof through the prophecies and the resurrection that Jesus is, in fact, who he is, check. Grace and peace to you at a moment-by-moment basis, check. God supplies all that we need. All right, friends, we've just wrapped up sentence one in Romans. Can you believe it? This is Paul. That's one sentence. Um, now to live the life, right? Now, what are we to do with this? What are we to go out and just and share this with? We're going to sing and take up the offering right now and wrap up our time chewing on some of this. You know, a discussion came up in men's group a few weeks ago as we were talking through vision and some of these things about discipleship and what, what is discipleship and all of that. You know, Paul discipled people through preaching and writing, but he also discipled people simply through living. Don't you get a sense that you're getting discipled by Paul as you look at his life and go, man, oh, to be a person that would wake up and be just utterly sure of my calling. Utterly confident that God is going to keep pressing me forward. Utterly secure in God's love. Passionate, on mission, in love with God, and in love with others. That kind of person, whether you met him in real life, whether you received a letter in 57 AD, or whether you're reading about it 2,000 years later, has a way of rubbing off on you. Here's the question. If you're a Christian, look at me. You're called to make disciples. It's a total cop-out. I'm telling you right now, this is not fair to go, I don't know what my assignment is. At the very least, love God, love other people, and make disciples. Can we agree that every Christian has those three things as a starting point? Now, from there, Paul's was to go to the Gentiles, to all nations. Get out of here! Go, go, go! Others were to stay put and minister to, to Jerusalem and to, to, to the Jewish people. What's yours? Let me pray. God, thank you for your clarity in Scripture. God, I thank you that there are so many things that are not ambiguous at all. You've laid it out super clear for us. Would you allow, God, the flesh to be put to death in us? That the Spirit could give us eyes to see, hearts humble to receive and obey and meekly do the implanted word that's been given to us. God, we also thank you for all kinds of wonder and mystery and things that are completely ambiguous to us. God, there are mysteries that are yours that aren't ours, and it's a reminder to us. And God, we probably need this as a church in the Silicon Valley more than most. We are not in control. Our ingenuity isn't what will get us through. Our entrepreneurial spirit and finances aren't the things that are going to move us to take this gospel message into some places that aren't there. God, help us to humbly lean on you and rely on you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.